Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hey folks, I am super excited to tell you a bit about today's new sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, MMC hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available. Spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com moods to learn more. Osiris. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media and made possible thanks to our Patreon community. To support the podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm probably best known as a professional guitarist. I'm also a writer, a photographer, and someone who occasionally gets told to keep his opinions to himself on Twitter. This podcast will involve music and guitar, but it may take us to some unexpected places as well. So, thank you for joining me, and let's do this. Moods and Modes, episode 28. My name is Alex. Welcome to the podcast, How Do You Do?, Thank you for tuning in, and regular listeners will know that right here, we normally start with a clip of music or dialogue. It's a sign of things to come. Today, we are not doing that because we are doing something a little bit different. Today's episode is going to be much simpler than our typical episodes. There is no guest. It is just yours truly. And another thing regular listeners are quite aware of is that the episodes tend to be very involved. And this has been the case pretty much from the get-go. On the very first episode in July 2020, I realized that between my recording equipment, my instruments, my keyboard demos that I had laying around, music that didn't have a home, there was a lot of potential to really get creative with the podcast. For example, an episode devoted to the memory of a recently departed musician will often include a conversation with another artist or journalist qualified to talk about that person, as well as favorite clips from the artist, maybe a musical analysis. And 
even for artists who are still with us, there's a lot of gathering involved, playing favorite clips, perhaps playing clips to illuminate things that we are talking about in conversation. None of that is going to happen today. <laughs> so I decided to do this episode. It's going to have minimal production, minimal editing, minimal maintenance. In fact, it's only going to consist of me speaking. Don't worry, this is not the template going forward. But as things pick up, more concerts are happening. It looks like touring is actually going to happen. I think in order to not have too big a lag between episodes, it's going to be necessary to do occasional episodes like this. But I think it's going to be fun, too. Let me explain. Not too long ago, I did a post on social media that included the following, quote, I'm starting to prepare a podcast episode where I answer your questions, not ones that have been answered a zillion times, such as, is that streak in your hair real? Or ones I'm not at liberty to answer, etc. I'll take questions that will hopefully be of interest to all listeners of multiple genres of music about pretty much anything. So if you have a question, put it in the comments, and it just may be addressed on the podcast. Oh, very important. Be sure to use hashtag AskAlex. Unquote. So here we are, the very first Ask Alex episode. Now, naturally, most of the questions I got seem to be very guitar specific, but there are some exceptions. I encourage people to ask all types of questions. Some podcasts do Ask Me Anything episodes, and that's exactly what this is. I think we will do this occasionally. So if you miss the prompt on social media, please feel free to write in anytime and ask a question and be sure to use the hashtag AskAlex. So I've been looking forward to this. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. However, I'm going to start with a topic that is not fun, but needs to be addressed because otherwise it's an elephant in the room. You may guess what I'm referring to. It is a question nobody has asked, but nobody needs to ask because I've made my position very clear on social media. And of course, that question would be, what are my thoughts on the current situation in Ukraine? So I'm going to read you my first tweet about the subject. This was on February 23rd, 2022. R.E. Ukraine hashtag. Only one person on Earth seems to want this invasion. Now he's bombing Kiev, a beautiful city I plan to visit. His colleagues look pained, but must agree with him or risk humiliation at best or much worse. Painful to watch. A true Mad King moment. WTF Putin. Now, I'm referring to a couple different things there. One is the fact that I was supposed to visit Ukraine and Russia. Testament had an extensive tour there, and then it was scheduled for February, and then it got moved because of Omicron. So, well, now it's definitely not happening. But ironically, we were supposed to be there, which is kind of scary. And I'm also referring to this recent footage of Putin. You may have seen it. He's humiliating a member of his staff. It looks like a general. And the rest of his inner circle looks like they're all on pins and needles. They don't want this. The Russian people don't want this. Obviously, the Ukrainians don't want this. Only one person wants this war. And you can't even call it a war. Now there's punishment for calling it that. You have to call it a special military operation if you live in Russia, and it couldn't be more Orwellian, and you can face many years in jail. What a tyrant. 
And every U.S. politician who ever praised Putin now looks really stupid. I'm not going to name any names. And just one more thought about Putin, and I'll move on. I tweeted this, but I can only fit so many words into a tweet. So these are my extended thoughts. Imagine you control one of the most powerful nations on the planet. You're virtually unopposed for more than 20 years. Other countries continue to do business with you, enriching you, despite the unethical implications. You get away with that. You're one of the richest people alive, yet it's not enough. You're miserable. You're seething. You have to have more land. That's what we're dealing with here. This guy has to be brought down somehow. And like many others, I'm thankful and grateful that the Ukrainian president has met the moment and just turned out to be super inspiring and a good guy. And I just hope he survives. And I'm just going to close this out by paraphrasing one of my tweets, which was a reminder that it is not about Russia, but one person that very few support. Russia equals some of the greatest writers, thinkers, composers dancers, artists, and rich culture overall. We just had a guest on from Russia, a wonderful violinist originally from the Soviet Union, and we discussed Prokofiev, Shostakovich, Stravinsky, Mazursky, other great Russian composers. I was thinking about the Russian writers, Dostoevsky, Nabokov, Chekhov, so many other great artists, thinkers. And as I said in this tweet, Let's be pro-Russia and anti-Putin. Don't say F Russia, say F Putin. And as they say in Ukraine, Slav Ukraina, or glory to Ukraine. And now, let's get to your questions. Hashtag AskAlex. Hi, Alex. All your years of playing, do you still find yourself pushing to be a better musician or are you content with your abilities? And if you still push yourself, what inspires you? Kevin from the UK. Hey, Kevin. I am absolutely not content in my abilities. And I think that's a good thing. I've always admired players who continue to grow as musicians. I never wanted to be one of those players for whom it was said, well... Yeah, his early stuff was good, but I don't know what happened. <laughs> you know, and a lot of us can probably think of players like that. Their first 10 years or so of turning professional is exciting. And then the music that they do after that, there's something missing. I'm not going to name names. But to focus on some positive examples, the late, great jazz guitarist Jim Hall was releasing albums well into his 70s. I think he might have reached his 80s. I need to look that up. But it was just as exciting to hear him then as his earlier work. Somebody from the rock guitar world who is like that is Jeff Beck, always developing and improving. Pat Metheny, who was a guest on this show, has said as much that he has improved a lot. He is constantly working on it. Chick Corea, whom we paid tribute to, is somebody that was just at the top of his game at the very end and was constantly practicing and letting listeners in on what he was practicing. So I've always admired folks like that. And I figured if those guys 
aren't content to rest on their laurels, but neither am I. Now, as far as staying inspired, well, great recordings are now abundant. I think one great thing about technology, despite its disruption of so much modern life, let alone the music industry, is that it presents an endless amount of opportunities for inspiration. If you want to find rare footage of a favorite musician live in concert, chances are it's available online, as long as you don't get sucked in by the clickbait, notifications, and other distractions. And streaming services have certainly not been without challenges to their ethics. That was all too apparent in the short time we've had in 2022, before Spotify was wiped off the headlines by Ukraine. But the fact that you don't have to make a trip to the record store and purchase physical products of music, which I still like to do, by the way, has made it so much easier to tap into large amounts of music and get inspired. I do this on Apple Music. Still, I think nothing compares to hearing live music. That's what I find most inspiring is a great concert. So I try to have a regular amount of live music that I go to hear. Also, transcribing favorite pieces of music, as I did not long ago with a favorite solo by George Benson, doing things like that keeps me inspired. And it's always great to have a challenge. In fact, lately, I've made things even more challenging by learning some parts on piano. Perhaps I will share those one day. Anyway, thank you for your question. And this one comes from Jason. Hey, Alex, do you live in an apartment? If so, do you ever get in trouble playing guitar? I've watched so many of your videos and always thought you were in an apartment. Hey, Jason. The answer is yes, I do live in an apartment. However, I live in New York City, which is not only one of the largest cities on the planet, but one in which most of us live in apartments. So I think when you account for the fact that we're all used to apartment living and the fact that New York is a noisy city in general, People are more used to noise. You don't move to New York for the quiet. You move to the suburbs. (laughs) In fact, as I'm speaking to you, I hear the sirens wailing from some emergency vehicles in the distance. Earlier, there was loud honking on the street because a UPS truck was blocking the road. All of which is to say that people are more used to noise here. And... Add to that the fact that there are so many artists and musicians in the city, and people are used to that, too. In fact, right now, I'm the only professional player in my building, at least to my knowledge. But there was a a couple, and they were professional musicians in the classical world on cello and violin. I miss them. I loved listening to them. There are a couple hobbyists that I hear playing. So it's much more normal here, and people are just used to it. Now, at the same time, I'm not going to abuse my privileges. I tend to reserve my louder playing for earlier in the day or at least not after 10 o'clock when I can still play. But, you know, I gotta have to be conscious of the volume. But this is one of the reasons why I live in New York City, despite its numerous challenges, is that you can get away with things like that and you don't have to soundproof your garage. Thanks for your question. And next, a non-musical but food-related question from Anatoly. Hope I'm saying that right. Hi, Alex. 
More than 10 years ago, you published Hooked on Hot, an article about spicy food on your personal blog, Skull Notes. After all these years of traveling around different countries, what is your list of favorite spicy foods? Any of your band members practice the spicy food ritual? And what is your opinion on hot ones? Would you agree to visit them if they invited you? All right, so let me just explain what hot ones is for anybody who might not know. It's an interview show that takes place on YouTube. And throughout the interview, the guest and host consume chicken wings or chicken substitute if the guest happens to be vegetarian or vegan. And it starts out with very mild hot sauce, like sriracha sauce. And over the course of the interview, the sauces get hotter. So by the end, you're dying. It doesn't matter who you are and what your tolerance is to hot sauce. It's actually a very creative idea for the show. So here's my answer. Hey, Anatoly. So it's hard for me to narrow down a list of favorite spicy foods because I have so many. But if I just think of a few... I will think Indian, for sure, Thai, Korean, and Mexican. Now, I've been to India once, but I've often ordered it in London, where there's an abundance of Indian restaurants, and even in New York. Same with Thai food. I've actually never been to Thailand. We were supposed to go right before the pandemic. It got canceled, hopefully, one day. Korea, I've been to a few times. and love visiting and love the food there. And Mexico, many times I've been there. Mexican food is something I grew up with in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's gotten much better in New York in the time since I've moved here. So while I consume it more often, Mexican food is still one of my favorites, especially fiery, hot, fresh Mexican salsa. Now, as far as other band members liking spicy food, I think almost everybody does in both Testament and my trio, but I can't think of anybody who is quite as obsessed with it as I am, or at least as I was at the time I wrote that blog post. I will add that the blog post, for those who haven't read it, was specifically about the spicy ramen in Japan that was a challenge to get through. And in general... I prefer to just enjoy the meal and not have it be a challenge, maybe once in a while. And speaking of challenges, that show, The Hot Ones, is all about the challenge. Of course, I would go on if invited, but I think the show has caught on so much at this point. It's part of the circuit for A-list celebrities now. I mean, a short list includes Matt Damon, Lil Nas X, Charlize Theron, <laughs> you know, the same people that go on Fallon and Kimmel now. That, that show is part of the circuit. So I think it's a little bit out of my league. But hey, producers of the show, if you're listening, I'm here. Thanks for your question, Anatoly. All right, this next question comes from Adrian. I think it's Adrian. It's spelled a little differently. A-D-R-E-N. Is it Adrian? I'm going to say Adrian. Hi, Alex. Do you find yourself being inspired by jazz players, metal players, or both? I remember hearing Testament in high school, but your jazz playing is what caught my attention. Hey, Adrian. Well, that's really great to hear. I'm always happy when people discover my playing, no matter how they're taken in. But it's especially gratifying when it's somebody who discovers my jazz playing or instrumental work in general where you get to hear whole compositions based around my playing, usually produced, arranged, and in most cases, composed by me. So if somebody is a fan of that music, I know they really like my playing. 
and I know there's a lot of fans of the Testament work that like my playing as well, but there are also fans where it's not really about that. It's just about the songs. And that's the case with many bands. I mean, many fans of bands will think that members of that band are just the greatest because they're in that band. I remember I thought Ace Frehley was the greatest guitarist on earth when I was 10. <laughs> I still think he's great, but you know, my perspective is a little different. Also, when I'm in Testament, I'm a part of a machine with many moving parts. And I would even go so far as to say that it's less a matter of genre than the work I do that falls under the jazz category being more of an individual work of art. So glad you appreciate that. And as far as whether I am more inspired by jazz guitar players or metal guitar players, I would say definitely in recent years, jazz guitar players. But you have to remember that I spent my formative years and the whole first part of my career mostly focused on metal. So I feel like having jazz guitar gives me a different voice in metal. I don't want to sound like other metal players. And it also seems like if I have my jazz guitar playing together, I'm not only happier, but my metal guitar playing does just fine. So, so I'm definitely more focused on jazz these days. Thank you for your question. Okay, this next one comes to us from Walter Morgan. I should say I know Walter. He's a longtime friend of many bands in the San Francisco Bay Area. One of those fixtures of the music scene. He's been a photographer, merch person, just all around supporters of the bands and rabid memorabilia collector. He probably has close to every flyer imaginable. I'm not exaggerating. So if anybody ever wants to start a Bay Area metal equivalent of Planet Hollywood or Hard Rock Cafe, please talk to Walter Morgan. What's happening, Walter? So Walt's question is another non-musical one. Tell us how you got your cat and became a cat person, how you named it, or any stories. Cool question. Well, I didn't grow up with cats. There's one side of my family that's very allergic. My mother, her brother, my uncle, and my grandmother were all allergic. Luckily, I didn't get the allergy. So I always liked cats, but I never had them as pets. As I got older, several of the relationships I had, the women all had cats, which I guess is a sign. Eventually, I was going to have to have one of my own. <laughs> okay, so my now long-term partner, who is incredibly private and publicity shy to the point where there are very few posts of us, and she makes me take them down. So I'm not going to talk about her, but uh, I will say that she has some friends. It's a couple that was living in New York at the time and found a litter of street cats that they were trying to get adopted. This was around 2016, maybe 2015. So I agreed to look after this cat until she found a more permanent home. I was just the foster cat daddy. And I know I'm not the only one with this story, but while looking after this cat, we completely bonded. She played my guitars. She played my piano. She was adorable. She reminded me of the creature from the film Gremlins before turning into the gremlin, the cute one, the mogwai, which was named Gizmo. So I named her Gizmo. And what can I say? Gizmo is still here, <laughs> never left. And she is the reason I became a cat person. Thanks for the question, Walter. 
and taking it back to music. Here's a question that was asked by several people. I wasn't planning to answer this because I didn't know if I'd be at liberty to give the answer. And if it wasn't public at this time, I wouldn't have said anything. But it is public, so I will just comment on it. The question is, who is the new drummer for Testament? And as anybody who has been following knows, there was a mutual and very amicable separation from Testament and the drummer for about the past 10 years or so of Gene Hoagland, great drummer. And the spot has been filled by <laughs> the perfect replacement, Dave Lombardo. I am super excited about this. And Dave, of course, is most often associated with the classic lineup of Slayer, all those great early albums. But he is also somebody not limited to the music for which he is best known. Sound familiar? <laughs> so we have that in common. Um, he's done a lot of different types of projects, including performing with John Zorn, who's a hero of mine in like jazz and avant-garde. And John Zorn likes a lot of intense music. And I guess he was a big Slayer fan and he brought Dave Lombardo in to some of his projects. So Dave Lombardo is one of several John Zorn drummers I've played with. Another one being Kenny Grahowski from Pact with Percy Jones. So I just couldn't be happier about this. I think we're going to have a great time on the road. And as I speak, there is a tour coming up next month. So looking forward to that. Here's a quick one from Duff Leviton. Are you a fan of the late Gary Moore? Yes, <laughs> that's pretty much all I need to say. But I will also add that I was a fan of his work before the blues stuff. Uh, I like his heavy rock music as well as his blues music. And I'll just add that I consider Gary Moore a great example of a very pure player. No gimmicks needed, no effects needed other than basic tone. It was really just all about the guitar, the amp, and his fingers. In fact, if you go back to our tribute episode to Peter Green, we talk about Gary Moore and play a couple very special clips of him. But thank you, Duff, for the question. And this one is from Jerry. Alex, what made you stop using Ibanez guitars? I actually bought my first Ibanez S540 back in 1990 because of players such as you and Satriani. And he goes on to describe his guitar. So, hey, Jerry. Let me be diplomatic when I answer this. I respect Ibanez guitars. A lot of friends of mine play them. I know that it's a great guitar brand. I'm pretty sure that if we had begun our association in the present day with all my musical associations of different types of musicians and just my diversity as an artist, it might be different. But back in the time period you describe, the early 90s, I was really seen as one-dimensional, and I felt kept in a box. Now, I don't blame Ibanez, and I wouldn't blame any other guitar company for wanting to categorize their artists, especially me at that time. I'm 21 years old. All I've got to my name is these thrash metal albums, and most guitar players who do that type of thing, especially back then, that's it. That's what they do. And the way the company worked back then, I'd imagine it still works, is that you had a corporate office 
that was in Japan and you had an artist rep who dealt with most of the musicians. The artist rep was a guy named Chris Kelly, who is still a good friend of mine. He ended up leaving the company around the same time I did. So I didn't have an advocate there. And Chris believed in me. He saw that I was expanding. He knew where I was going. And he stuck up for me and tried to get them to believe that I was going to be more than just a guy who plays thrash metal. So I felt like I was limited in what types of guitars I could play. I felt like my deal was limited. I'd had this entry level deal. And after a few years, well, quite a few guitars had gotten sold because of me playing them in these widely seen videos. Yet I wasn't seeing any royalties off these guitars because they weren't signature models. Me having my own signature model at that time was not even a topic of discussion. So I think if they were open to renegotiating my deal, and I think if there was more recognition that I was more than just thrash metal guy in the guitar catalog, I probably would have stuck around. But it just didn't make sense at that time. And around 2010, when things started getting really busy for me again, I talked to a bunch of companies about a new endorsement, including Ibanez. But I felt like they have some hesitancy towards ex-endorsees. And it just didn't feel right. Meanwhile, ESP, who I'm with, just welcomed me with open arms, recognized that I am a diverse player, said, we want to build you whatever you want. And we consider you a top tier artist, regardless of record sales. That was what I needed to hear. Thank you for the question. Now, there's another question from Jules that makes a fitting follow-up. I'm going to shorten it just for time. But he's basically asking about my switch from Ibanez guitars to Les Pauls and whether the scale length was a consideration. Hey, Jules. So I've never thought about scale length. And these days I play a number of different guitars for different situations. The SG, for example, and I have two of them. Three, if you count the double neck, but maybe that's four, <laughs> has a very different scale length than most of my other guitars. And it's just not a consideration. But one of the reasons I switched to Les Pauls initially for that period before I had my ESP signature model was that I was going for more tone and less playability. And I was really ready to take a back seat as far as ease on the fretboard. And I was also doing more and more jazz guitar and playing these hollow body guitars, which are a bit more challenging to play. So Les Paul made the most sense as far as going back and forth between hollow body and solid body. In a way, it was also getting back to my roots because my very first real electric guitar was a Les Paul. So by the time we get to my ESP signature guitar, I've rediscovered the tone of a Les Paul and I want that. But I also want more playability and a bit more ease around the neck because by that time I'm back in Testament playing all this stuff I had played on a thin Ibanez. So it was about all those things, but never about scale length. Regardless, thanks for your question. And now a musical question, but non-guitar related. Do you know Javanese traditional music gamelans? Have you ever thought about writing a composition with traditional music like gamelans? Thank you. And that's by Manungal K. Wardaya. I may be saying that wrong. Apologies if so. And I would guess that he is from Indonesia. So hello, Manungal. I was in Indonesia 
with Testament about five years ago, maybe a little longer. And I remember that we were presented with a very nice welcome in the hotel lobby that included some traditional beverages, some souvenirs, and there was a small combo of local musicians playing. And one of them was playing the gamelan. Now, I have done an album of global music with instruments from all over the world. The gamelan would have fit on that album for sure, but we already had 27 musicians and we just couldn't get to everyone. So I would love to do a sequel of that recording, a Planetary Coalition follow-up, and include the gamelan. And this doesn't really count, but I recently played a strange keyboard part on my own rap song, and the sound was based on a sample of a gamelan. So how the hell can there be a quid pro quo? Okay, a few questions have been asked more than once. I'm going to take on one now that has been asked a couple different ways. So Doug wrote it this way. I've always loved your solos. How do you come up with them? And how do you do it after writing so many without repeating yourself? Thanks. Thank you, Doug, for the nice words. And there's a very similar question by Leon, who writes, Leads, write it or wing it. <laughs> and I like how that's put, straight and to the point, which is a good thing to shoot for when you're playing guitar licks. So to answer both these guys, I would say that I like a combination of composition and improvisation. In other words, I like to write it and wing it. It's very easy to fall into the trap of sounding too methodical and overly planned. At the same time, if you don't have some preparation, you're probably not going to like what you play. And if you're in the studio recording a track that's potentially going to be played on tour and audiences are going to be expecting a very similar solo, well, you need to like it. So you need to put some work into it. And to paraphrase Doug's question, how do you come up with solos? Well, it's a process. Let me tell you. Guitar solos don't just come straight out the way you hear them on a professional recording or live in concert. By the time they reach your ears, a lot of work has gone into them. In a way, the process goes full circle. It begins with nothing, just pure improvisation, wild guessing, winging it. If you're lucky, you'll take a pass at the solo section and there will be one small part of it that you like. Maybe it's a bar of music or more. More likely, it's a beat or two. And most likely, you'll have to take a whole other pass at it and keep going until you find that small section that you like. Do this enough times, you'll have several sections that you like. At some point, you'll need to refresh your ears and take a break, come back to it fresh, and maybe you'll realize some of the parts that you thought you like, mm, you don't like that much. So let's fast forward to the part of the process where you've been doing this for quite some time, and you have a framework, and you like all the parts. Well, as you're playing that framework, you'll keep chipping away at it and tweaking it. And there's a certain moment that happens during this process. I imagine it's different for everybody. I know it for myself. I just feel it, and I observe the music, and I get to this point where I can say to myself, honestly, I am ready to go in and start laying down takes. I should mention that a lot has changed since I first began recording professionally. 
in the early days, I used to sit in a studio lobby and play along with a cassette recorder until I got the part right. And we had limitations. For one thing, we were working within the studio schedule. So you had to wait until they were ready for you. Maybe somebody else was recording before you and you had to wait until the bass was finished or the rhythm guitar was finished or whatever the case may be. And then another limitation we had was a finite number of tracks. I can remember often being in the situation where I'd recorded several takes of one solo and being told, okay, do you like any of those? Because we're going to have to start erasing them. We've run out of tracks. <laughs> now, this was in the early days. Things started to change by the early 90s. It was typical to record digitally where you were able to keep more of those solos. But on those first couple Testament records, at least, those were done on two inch tape, you know, just like they did in the 70s and early 80s. So it's a lot easier now, but I'm glad I got that chance to record in analog because it was much more of a challenge, but it was also really good training. But getting back to the process of recording solos. So let's say I'm at the point where I've developed my solo idea. I have the framework. I like it. And I am laying down takes. Well, I know what I like. And as a listener, I prefer solos that sound like they may have been worked out, but there is a big sense of spontaneity. Eddie Van Halen is a great example of that. There are parts that you know he worked out because they specifically fit the song, but so much of it seems off the cuff, and it is. So I lay down these takes, but I try to make it a little different each time and just take a chance and try something new. Eventually, I will have a solo that I like, and hopefully you will too. So thank you, Doug and Leon, for your questions. And I'm just going to take a few final questions now. I'm going to keep this to 40 minutes. We're not doing the usual housekeeping break. There really isn't much housekeeping. The little bit there is was sort of baked into the episode already. And I'm moving to Instagram now. Most of these questions so far have been on Facebook. There are more than I can get to. So I will do a follow-up episode at some point and refer to some of these questions. But over on Instagram, Goalie Mask <laughs> writes, when you play drastically different genres of guitar, do you find yourself in a different headspace? Or is your approach to metal and jazz similar? Straddling two such different worlds is great, by the way. Defying expectations for both genres must be challenging. Cheers. Why, thank you, Goalie Mask. And I should mention that there's another very similar question. I'd love to hear about balancing slash transferring practice theory and skill sets between metal and jazz. That is by Crisp Neurons. <laughs> it's kind of funny how the names get so interesting on Instagram. Well, I think the most basic thing is the musical equipment. That's why I like to have very specific jazz guitars, like uh, the L5, for example, or the Gibson 347, which is very similar to a 335 versus a solid body. Now, I can dial in a solid body, so it has a pretty good jazz tone, but I think it's best to practice on a straight jazz instrument. 
And if I'm on my rig, that is more of a jazz guitar rig, I will warm up differently. I'll probably focus more on licks by favorite jazz players. Like I'll think, okay, what was that Schofield lick I transcribed or that George Benson lick? And I'll just get into that zone. In fact, I often start with that, even on days that I'm performing or recording metal, because I just find that that's a really good warm-up, studying favorite jazz licks. Now, once I'm with a metal rig, solid-body guitar, heavily overdriven tone, usually a, a large, loud amplifier, well, I'm going to play very different. I just naturally going to start playing riffs and playing with the energy that is required of doing riffs and high energy screaming solos. And also I know I focus on different rhythmic pulses, whether I'm playing jazz guitar or metal guitar, because rhythmically they are quite different. They have different types of syncopation and subdivision, which is a subject I could get much more into. But I have a feeling if you watched me doing both and compared the movements, I probably move very differently. Either way, thank you, Goalie Mask and Crisp Neurons, for the interesting questions. And I'm going to do one final answer, but it's to several similar questions about guitars. This one on Instagram is from jstein666. What are your favorite top three guitars? And is there one amp that really hits the sweet spot for you? And then moving back to Facebook, Tracy Rollo wants to know, what's my favorite guitar to play on stage? And there are a few others like this, but I'm going to close with this one by Alessandro Colico, who put this very creatively. If you would have to choose two guitars to bring with you in a desert island, the island is supplied with electricity, laugh emoji, what would they be? How do you find inspiration from other musicians? Do you study their music and try to take some of those flavors in yours? Well, I'll answer the last part first. Yes, I'm constantly finding inspiration from other musicians. Look at my videos where I transcribe other players' solos, for example. But back to the guitars. So if I would have to choose two guitars to bring with me to a desert island, well, the first one would probably be my 1976 Gibson L5. I talk all about this guitar in the debut episode of this podcast, where I got the guitar repaired by legendary New York City repairman Matt Yumanov. And I told the whole story about picking it up in Berkeley, California, and using it as incentive to get my jazz playing together. Otherwise, the guitar goes back. And I still have it. But I also consider it one of my best sounding guitars. And I just feel like they don't really make them like this anymore. And of course, the L5 is a jazz box. So if I'm going to be on a desert island, I'm going to want an electric guitar as well. And so for my solid body pick, I will say the Alex Skolnick Aquaburst ESP. And this is the one that is in most of the photos with me recently. I do most of my instrumental gigs with it. And I don't mean my clean jazz guitar gigs like the trio or the recent quintet, more like the electric jazz rock stuff. When I play with people like Percy Jones, for example, or Stu Hamm. For those gigs, I almost always bring the Aquaburst ESP Alex Kolnick. And not just because my name's on it. They really got it right. And I would also say this is probably my favorite guitar to play on stage, which answers 
Tracy's question. But getting back to Stein 666 on Instagram, who asked about my top three guitars, that means I can add one more. So I'm going to add my Gibson 347 that I picked up at Replay Guitars in Tampa, Florida, and used on the song Florida Man Blues. <laughs> and it's actually the perfect blend between a uh, big jazz box and a thin solid body. It is a hollow body, but it has the feel of an electric guitar, does not feed back, but has the resonance of a semi-acoustic guitar. Of course, I'm missing a straight acoustic guitar but I think between those three guitars, I'd be able to make a lot of music. And Jay Stein also asked about a favorite amp. And I just got back this Fender Vibrolux from 1968, one of my all-time favorite amps, also used on Florida Man Blues. And this amp is just doing it for me at the moment. So thank you, Jay Stein, Tracy, and Alessandro for those guitar-related questions. And thank you, everybody who submitted questions. I'm sorry I couldn't get to them all. I plan to pick up some more at some point when we do this again. For now, that is going to be it for the very first episode of Hashtag Ask Alex. And that wraps up episode 28. I hope you enjoyed this slightly different format, which we will revisit at some point. And thank you again for your listener submitted questions and apologies to those I didn't get to, which include some good ones that we will revisit next time we do this. I have to admit, it takes longer than I thought to answer your questions because good questions deserve good answers. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media, hosted and produced by yours truly, Alex Skolnick. Production for Osiris by Kirsten Cluthy and Brad Stratton, with final edits and mixes by Justin Thomas of Revoice Media. Artwork by Mark Dowd. All the music you heard in this episode is by yours truly, Alex Skolnick track playing right now includes Matt Zabrowski on the drums and Nathan Peck on the bass. So thanks to our whole crew. Thanks to all of you, the listeners, and extra special thanks to those who support the podcast through our Patreon community. You can join us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Alex However, there are numerous ways you can support the podcast. For example, you could do a tweet about the podcast. There have been some great ones lately. We see you. Thank you. And you can go on to whatever platform you use to listen and give us a rating. Better yet, a review. And most of all, if you haven't already, please hit subscribe. Lots of good stuff coming up. We don't want you to miss an episode. So thanks once again. I'll see you on the next one. Take care and be safe. Slava Ukraini! Osiris. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about the April-May 2023 issue of Relics Magazine. It features a Dave Matthews Band cover story with additional articles and interviews with The National, Graham Nash, Wayne Shorter, ALO, Ivan Neville, 
our friend Eric Krasno and Stanton Moore, Marty Stewart, and much more. Check out the latest version of Relics and subscribe now at relics.com slash DMB. Thanks, Relics. Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born, to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song.